it's humbling to realize what you think you have picked up the first six times you read something, you know, and then in the seventh, you find something new and the eighth, you find something new and then someone else reads it and they find like, I didn't realize how long it took to hear, how much work it took to hear, really hear. And I don't mean just word for word or phrase for phrase, but what is someone really doing when they're telling a story? And I feel like it's more like getting to know a friend than just learning the cerebral part of the text, really getting to know the heart of an author. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Edmund Spencer's epic poem, The Fairy Queen, is one of the monumental works of English literature, but it just doesn't get read anymore. Rather than curse the darkness, my friend Rebecca Reynolds is lighting a candle. She has rendered Spencer's 36,000 lines of very difficult poetry into much more accessible prose. And artist Justin Gerard has painted absolutely gorgeous illustrations. The books start coming out later this year, but you can get involved now by contributing to the Kickstarter campaign, which is linked in the episode description. Rebecca Reynolds, so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. This is going to be fun. And I'm so excited about your new rendering of the Fairy Queen. Prose rendering of a poem. We'll have to spend some time unpacking that. That's that's a good one to unpack. Because there's a there are some how questions and there are some why questions related to right. turning a poem into. How many lines is that poem? 30,000? 30, about 36,000. 36,000 lines of poetry rendered into prose. Well, yeah. and like, do we call you the fairy queen now? Is that, is that your, is that your <laughs> title now? Um, I would kind of prefer the great Gloriana. <laughs> That's good. Okay. We can, we yeah. can work with that. Tell me how this thing came into being. It's continuing to come into being, right? Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, we're still in the, we're still doing some editing, um, but, you know, and then we'll do the book layouts and all of that fun stuff. But um, it was born in a classroom. I was teaching a Renaissance, I mean, Elizabethan Lit, Elizabethan Lit section um, to ninth graders. And the Fairy Queen, just the very first canto of book one was listed in the curriculum as a study in uh, Elizabethan language. Uh-huh. Like that was the whole point of that, which is kind of silly because mm-hmm. Spencer is not really a good example, as you know, of Elizabethan language. He borrows a lot. He he loved Chaucer. He borrows a lot of his his diction never really existed. I mean, he just kind of made it up. So um, it was like a, uh, taking Tolkien as an example of mid 20th century. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good. <laughs> um, and the kids, of course, were bored to tears, except for a couple of. Um, super nerds, which I love, but um, most of them were just in a coma um, from boredom. And I just thought this does not do this beautiful work of literature justice. So I went home and spent a lot of that night just um, reworking it in a form that they could understand and showed up the next day and read it to them. And they were transfixed. They wanted more of monsters exploding themselves and <laughs> yeah enchanted forests and they just were like why haven't we heard of this before and yes. so that's where it all began um tell me about monsters exploding on themselves 
Um, it's messy business. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> no, the 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 imagery in this poem is just so outlandish. It's crazy, yeah. And that particular scene, um, the Red Cross Knight beheads uh, a giant monster and her babies, which um, you know are used to crawling into her mouth to escape, drink her blood as it pours out onto the ground of the cave and they don't stop drinking and then they explode themselves. So, um, yeah. And, it's it's, pretty, and there's 36,000 lines of this stuff. I mean, that, that is, yeah. that's probably on the, in the upper half of how wild it gets, but it's not especially singular as far as the poem goes. His right. imagination uh, is astounding. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because in his letter to Sir Walter Raleigh, he kind of describes what he intends to do with the Fairy Queen. Um, and C.S. Lewis, it's interesting reading what he says about it because you can tell the story gets away from Spencer. You know, he's attempting to write this tale of moral instruction yeah. <laughs> to create gentlemen, and you know, he's going to do this noble thing. And then I think somewhere right after book two is where he really just kind of cuts loose. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that there's some influence from Ariosto, but there's also just some coming into his own voice, I think, that happens in book three. And it's just, you you know, you find yourself falling into a journey with him. Yes. So um, it's incredible. Yeah. Can we? It's OK. When you first told me years ago that you were going to be doing this, mm -hmm. I had my doubts. Yeah. I, be Jonathan, because... I'm hurt. You doubted me. <laughs> you knew I. You knew I had to talk about that. Were they big doubts or little doubts? They were uh, the. They were fundamental doubts. Whether they're big or little, they were. I mean, ju just turning this into prose hurt my feelings. Right, the thought of, of taking <laughs> this big poem and turning it into prose hurt my feelings. Yeah, it kind of hurts my feelings too, honestly. Yeah. So, what was your? What can you talk talk to me about the calculation by which you said? I know this is, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so many times in my life, I have gone through that exact same process. <laughs> this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so I was pretty comfortable with that progression. <laughs> you, know, um, you had so much actually, experience. That it, it... Yeah, yeah. I was an expert in doing things that I knew were wrong. Um, yeah, it can't be done. And I didn't do it. I mean, that's the bottom line. You can't take poetry and turn it into prose. And so at the same time, nobody's reading the poetry. And um, mm -hmm. I could sit on a throne and scorn them for not reading it. And shame on you for not, you know, working, hacking your way through this old poem that's harder to read than Shakespeare and harder to read than Marlowe, mm -hmm. I think, by far. I mean, yeah. I can just, students who were soaring through Shakespeare were not able to get through Spencer. Um, or as a teacher, I can provide a tool. And um, so my goal isn't to replace Spencer's poem. Mm -hmm. um, I decided somewhere in through there to give a great deal of help at the beginning of book one and then just slowly integrate more of Spencer's language so that by the time you finish the last two cantos of the fragment of book seven, then then you're ready then you're ready to you're not as intimidated to tackle this very difficult poem so yeah. um in terms of methodology how i did it some places i feel like were more uh, difficult than others in some places the poetic structure was i mean you feel like you're breaking something deep and universal 
to take that apart because you can't mm -hmm. do it. In other places, he seems to use his form in a in a just a more flat narrative way. Yes. So yeah. um yeah, and there were times when when it was just easier to figure out how to do that than others. As I grew toward the end of the poem, it became easier because I felt um more comfortable leaving in words that might have been difficult for people in the in, in book uh -huh. one. So yeah. Well, I, I can tell you how I got more comfortable with the, the idea. And it was when, when I began to understand, uh, as you said, when when the verse is gone, you lose the verse. I mean, you, you lose something. And, and the verse is so incredibly important to that poem. Right. But I came, I just, as a, the more I thought about it, the more I read what you were doing, the more I realized I, I do miss the verse, but that's yeah. not all the, the goody that's in this poem like right. these this imagery right. is is outlandish and some of the situations and stories are i mean it, you when you take away the verse you still what you have left is still something along the lines of tolkien or or yes. you know it's this this out out outsized fantasy story with yep. the monsters and the dragons and all that kind of stuff it's some things are worth doing imperfectly, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, his rhyme scheme, if you think about it, it's, you know, A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. That's a lot of the same endings. And, you know, so to do, to accomplish this, you have to flip a lot of your sentence, your natural mm -hmm. sentence mm -hmm. form to make it work. And yeah. so to ask someone not only to read something from the 1590s, but something that has a lot of language that's older than the 1590s and yet the sentences don't even go in the natural order that's just a lot and i think that um you know it's going to be scary uh i've had a lot of people look through this and check through it line by line i'm sure that i have missed things that sure. i will regret but yeah. my publisher has been wonderful about saying that as we as people write in and, and and let me know what those things are that we can improve it and it'll be it'll be growing over time and that makes me feel better about it too yeah. i had um one person came up to me and said don't take out the daring do you cannot take the daring do out of <laughs> <laughs> so every time i ran into daring do i was you, you just mean the word daring do yeah 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 it was <laughs> well he this person had thought Spencer had had created that, but then I was doing some more research and found out that's not quite true, but it is a signature. You know, uh, you think of the daring do being part of Spencer. So there are things like that, that I just left in for fun. So, yeah. Um, I, now a lot of this is because Justin Gerard illustrated the book, but, um, or maybe I should say is illustrating. Is he, I guess he's still he's done. He's done. He's done. Okay. Except, well, there's one image I want him to do. I think we're going to we don't have a color image yet for the fragment of seven, which is one of my favorite bits of the fairy queen. Those last mm -hmm. two cantos that were found after he died. And I just think he'll do a phenomenal job with that. But other than that, he's finished. OK, well, to finish my sentence. Um, Sorry. <laughs> um, Justin Gerard um, does such a great job of reminding us that this is the progenitor of so much of the the fantasy yeah. literature fa the, fa the whole fantasy genre yeah um, and i think you i mean your work makes it very apparent and then your work plus justin's work it's 
this is amazing. It's like a it's like a Molly Hatchet album. <laughs> you know, um, he was wonderful to work with because and I knew from the beginning that Justin was was the person to do this. He has so much respect for story mm -hmm. um, and so little ego to be as gifted mm -hmm. as he is that he was he was willing to sit under story and yet take liberties when they needed to be taken. You know, mm -hmm. um, can you give a concrete example of what you mean by that? Well, I spent a lot of time either reading the text, recording it for him, because his his preference was to listen to the story as he was creating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can tell just from that, that it's somebody who's willing to spend that many hours just listening. And then he would mm -hmm. send a sketch, you know, like the sketch of despair originally was um, one way and then. Uh, you know, there were several things like that. And then we would get the text back out and talk through the text. And, you know, you could see the lights go on and he would. Um, and then there were other things just that he brought such power. Like the sea monsters in book two. I just mm -hmm. you've seen that illustration mm -hmm. probably, but mm -hmm. just intuitively. He put what's in the text, even though it wasn't in the text, it was like it fit. It, yeah. fit. it was harmonious with what Spencer was doing. So, well, it's it was, such a it's such a beautiful book, gorgeous. I'm so thankful for him. Yeah, we need we kind of jumped right in and didn't even talk about you know this book isn't coming out. It's not out. It's tell tell me about the well. I'm I'm urging you to talk about the Kickstarter campaign, which the, the day this podcast releases is the first day of the Kickstarter campaign. So tell me tell mm -hmm. me about that. Tell me. About these things. Yeah. Okay, so we will release November of this coming year. That's mm -hmm. the November when people, of, of 2030. Yeah, yeah. When you build a Kickstarter campaign, you say this is when you're going to get your stuff, and you're going to uh -huh. get your stuff in November. Uh -huh. So that's that's the date. Um, yeah. And what else? What do you want to know I mean, about that? You you've there's a Kickstarter campaign. That's what I want to make sure all the listeners of this podcast know. There's a Kickstarter campaign. Sorry, mm -hmm. there's a way for them to help bring this thing into the world. Right. Um, and do you have anything to say about, and, and we, if necessary, we can cut this part out, but do you have anything to say about um, your the decision to, to do it this way? It's, this is not a conventional way of for a publisher to, to do a new book. No, I, I would love to talk about that. I think it's important. Um, you know, when I started doing this work, I was a teacher and then I was an audiobook reader. And now I'm actually an employee of the company that is publishing this. So um, I have looked at this project as a writer and then just sort of a side person. And now I'm inside it. And as I have been looking simultaneously for for books to acquire, I've realized some of what I criticize as a writer about the publishing industry um, you know, why are these junk books out there? These are just quick sells. Nobody's going to be reading these in 100 years. And then I realized to fund the things that a, a publisher might really believe in, there has to be income generated. Mm -hmm. And so how do you do this in a world in which the big distributor of books, which will go unnamed, is taking vast quantities of, of the money from mm -hmm. authors, from publishers? So how do you level that playing field and um, my boss is actually the one who first wanted to do a kickstarter he has kind of had his thumb on the pulse of kickstarter all along and um 
is an out of the box thinker. And I started to really believe in it. And I thought, you know, this, this gives, this gives us a way to generate projects that are meaningful without the waste. Mm-hmm. And to waste. find, tell me yeah. what waste are you talking about? The, the noise, there's just so much noise in the book world right mm-hmm. now. You know, this, there's a lot that's, uh, you know, Mark Mennell, a friend, a common friend of ours in, um, in England has talked about this bookstore. And uh, has he told you about this, the bookstore that they curate the books to where if say you want a book on Morocco, you know, you know, the only books they have on Morocco there are the best books to read. And I love, not that there can be some book God that determines the best books on Morocco, but the idea of being selective. Yeah. Um, And that's funny. You mentioned Mark Mennell and and curating, because I was in a bookstore the other day and was about to buy my mother a biography of the queen. Oh, and yeah. I thought, I don't know which of these is a, so I called Mark Mennell. What did he say? And the one I had in my hand, he said, I wouldn't touch it with a bodge pole. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Did anyway, he give you I'm the sorry. good one? Did he give you a uh, good one? They didn't have a good one. Oh, okay. By Mark's lights. So. Oh, okay. Y'all. Anyway, well, he I'm know. sorry. I interrupted he you. He would know. Yeah. No, I just, I just think that if, if the goal is to generate enough income that you are f- you know, funding the three things that you believe in by publishing the 20 things that people are just, they're kind of going from their gut and buying to get their adrenaline high or their, you know, dopamine high. Um, why not cut that out and put things only in the world that are good for the world and that, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of, it just cuts through a lot of the chaos, I think. And mm-hmm. who knows? It may not work, but I believe in it now, whereas mm-hmm. at the beginning, I was very skeptical. Well, I mean, the the comparison to the uh, patronage system in Spencer's day seems mm-hmm. obvious here, right? Yeah. The, the patrons yeah. weren't funding. The patrons didn't have to fund a bunch of junk so that Spencer could write what he wrote. Right. They just right. funded Spencer. Yep. I think he was the only... He, if unless I'm mistaken, I think he was the only poet of his time to actually get a pension from the queen. Yeah. So yeah, okay. he. So he. It's a good thing he made her look good. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about what the queen has to do with uh, Queen Elizabeth I. What she has to do with with uh, the fairy queen. Okay. Well, so the fairy queen. It's difficult for me to talk about the allegory of the fairy queen, because if you're thinking of something like a morality play or mm-hmm. Pilgrim's Progress, you're, you're kind of thinking more of a one on one to one, you know, where right. you, it's very clear what the connections are. Um, Spencer used allegory in a completely different way and um, almost in an archetypal subconscious kind of way where there's meaning. But, you know, you could say like the character Una represents truth and the church. But she's also very much Una who makes mistakes and she's a person in herself. And so it, there's kind of a ebb and flow of allegory within a given character. So I want to preface what I say about Elizabeth um, the first with that. But of course, he's writing this to honor her. He was uh, living in English occupied Ireland at the time. And when he was writing his first three books, he really wanted to go back to court in England and was trying very hard to win favor to to go back to court. And 
you can tell that by the end of the sixth book, book he realizes this is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the last of the six books just kind of drops off. Boom! <laughs> like I'm sad. <laughs> Nobody likes me. Boom! Um, so thank goodness for the fragments of of book seven, which C.S. Lewis just says, you know, it would be hard to end anything better than they ended. The, yeah. Than they ended the epic poem, but um. But yeah, Elizabeth, uh, so it kind of changes through the poem, although she has different manifestations. Gloriana, the, the queen of Fairyland, Britomart um, represents her in some ways. There's another kind of huntress, Belphebe, um, who also is a manifestation of her. Um, Alma, there's a, a queen who's kind of moderating uh, a, a court case. So you see a lot of different iterations of Elizabeth in the books, but it's interesting because by the time you get to book six, he's moved from the chivalric tale to the pastoral. And so this is the one place where he kind of even apologizes to Elizabeth and says, I'm going to feature this, this woodland queen and she's going to get the glory in book six. So it's, <laughs> yeah. C.S. Lewis said this is a the, watching someone slowly become an Irishman as he huh. falls in love with the country yeah. of Ireland while writing as an Englishman. Oh, I love so, it. yeah. Um, okay. Talk to me about what it's like to spend this much time with one big poem. Now, in many ways, I know it feels like a lot of different poems, but it's still, it is one big poem by, by one person. Yeah when you live this long inside a poem what happens um it's humbling to realize what you think you have picked up the first six times you read something <laughs> you know and then you in the yeah. seventh you find something new and the yeah. eighth you find something new and then someone else reads it and they find like it's just it's um i didn't realize how long it took to hear how much work it took to hear, really hear. And I don't mean just word for word or phrase for phrase, but what is someone really doing when they're telling a story? And I feel like it's more like getting to know a friend than just learning the cerebral part of a text, really getting to know the heart of an author. Mm -hmm. And it's also given me a lot of different perspectives on everything from what does biblical interpretation mean and what does it mean when I'm listening to someone tell their perspective on something that happened all those things just it's really deepened my um perception on all of that mm. yeah. I know there as you have as much as you love Spencer there are things you don't love about Spencer yeah as as you as you got deeper into the project, Sometimes you didn't love him as much as you did at other times. Tell, tell me about that. Well, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to make excuses for him. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I don't like is when people look back in time and they say, well, the, you know, this person was just living in a different era. You know, there are some deep universal principles of ethics that people should just know, you know, you mm -hmm. don't, you don't keep people captive. You don't, you know, you respect all humans. And mm -hmm. um, he, he made some grave mistakes while working with Lord Grey in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And he wrote um, 
a terrible thing <laughs> about the Irish. And, and uh, you know, as I, I was just horrified at first when I was reading about this, and then I dug deeper and realized that, you know, part of the reason that he felt the way he felt about how to, quote, tame a country was because of what England had gone through in the Wars of the Roses and the brutality of those and how the heavy hand of the Tudors coming in um, kind of helped him. His perspective was, this is how we came out of brutality. And therefore, as we enter the, you know, Ireland had so many different factions and the, there was so much of what he thought was chaos in religions and, and how the areas worked. Um, still, nonetheless, and, and there was some aggression on the part of the Irish, of course, these people are coming mm -hmm. into uh, their country, but it doesn't excuse it. But it does help me understand, I guess, book five in C.S. Lewis, as much as he loved the fairy queen and borrowed from the fairy queen, as much as you can find of Narnia and the fairy queen. And mm -hmm. I feel like till we have faces in some places, C.S. Lewis hated book five. And that's the book on justice. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just uh, Artigal is the main knight and he has an iron man who's like this yeah. pre it's a robotic figure. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. Talis? Talis? And he was given to Artigal to kind of administer all of the severe punishments. And he's just a slaughtering machine. He'll just, you know, he would kind of go in and do the dirty work. And um, it's very difficult to read book five and not feel completely offended. But yet what an important book for us to read right now because who you know every country tends to think this is justifiable because the you know these are the ends that i'm i'm going for so i feel like some of the books i can read and learn from as the way spencer meant book five i read it and feel deeply convicted mm -hmm. about things that i have believed and how easy it is even when you think you're creating something that will help create goodness to really be off so um and yet there's stuff in book five about how justice works and the different aspects of justice that are interesting as well so yeah it's difficult for me to answer but and also some of how he treated women and some mm. of how he speaks about people in other cultures you know that bothers me thankfully i was able to put in footnotes yeah quite a bit mm -hmm. that said whoa not okay <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. not okay yeah. um yeah. And I appreciated being a female, especially going through this text and being able to say, you know, it's not your fault if you are attacked and uh -huh. your goodness doesn't, the heavens don't always look down on a woman who is being mistreated and yeah. because of her goodness, rescue her. Sometimes she ends up being hurt. And those kinds of things that used to be said could be very hurtful yeah. to women who have been through trauma. So, uh -huh. um, I think it's important to talk about those too, because some of those, even if we don't still teach those things, the impressions those teachings have left in our society are there as ghosts. And I think it's good to see where they came from and that way we can address them head on. Yeah. Um, tell me some stories. You're such a good storyteller. Just tell me some stories that people may not know from the Fairy Queen that are just sort of rip roaring good story oh, you've already wow. you've already described the the monsters the little baby dragons who uh eat themselves till they burst yeah. Uh, yeah give me some more good stuff like that well that actually that story is sort of a preview story a lot at the beginning of a lot of the books um 
Spencer will have a, a little mini sort of a preliminary story that's going to foreshadow the the book as a whole. So that sits in a kind of a separate context along with several of the other. Gosh, it's hard for me to pick. I love Bredemart. Um, how mm-hmm. could I not love Bredemart? I thought I loved Aon, and I still love Aon. But Bredemart is just man. Tell me who Bredemart is. Okay, so Bredemart is the female knight of book three, and she begins her tale as a princess. She wanders into a closet or a room back in her father's kingdom and finds the seeing glass thing. Um, some people actually think it was the ball and some others think it was like a, a glass glass. But um, there's a there's a ball in a museum, a glass ball that some people think actually was being referenced there. And she looks in it and sees her this man and uh love for him quickens and she begins to just waste away and um and part of the reason i like book three is you know and i I love jesus i love you know orthodox theology so i don't mean this in a heretical way but book one is has very orthodox tidy um you know he's dealing with holiness and it's beautiful Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful story of of christian redemption book two is more Aristotelian ethics and the, you know the the focus on the mean the between two extremes but in book three um you know she doesn't just pray to Jesus if you want me to marry this man I'll find him no like it's not like that you know she her nurse um worries about her because she's wasting away and tries to do these things spinning her around and all these like spell kind of things to rid her of love and of course it doesn't work and so they go to Merlin and she finds a foreshadowing of her destiny to be the mother of a great nation and um and so she takes on armor there's a famous female knight it talks about several famous female knights she takes on armor and her nurse takes on armor and they sally forth to uh find this man and so the whole time, I, the first time I was reading book three, I thought, here we go. You know, I was ready for the end where she finds her man. And nope. I mean, that, you know, it does not end the way you think it's going to end. But meanwhile, she accomplishes a tremendous amount, faces down things that men can't do, that mm-hmm. only she can do. And her interactions with men make me laugh. Uh, there's a scene at the beginning where she's she kind of runs into the the main knight of book two and Arthur, who's still a prince. They meet each other in the woods. You know, of course, she knocks one of them off his horse because he challenges her. But they decide to be friends and they kind of get together. Well, this gorgeous woman, uh, Floramel, uh, as they're, you know, doing their nightly communal stuff, this gorgeous woman starts flying through the, the wood. And she's breathtakingly beautiful. The men just whoop, they, like they, they really she's being chased. The, both the men disappear and Brudemar is left alone. She waits a little while and she's like, I guess they're not coming back. And so she, you know, she goes on and on her own journey. And that's she finds the Red Cross Knight and saves him um, from a dilemma that he's in. But it's it's not predictable. So much of this is yeah. not predictable. And I love that. It's yeah. I was continually surprised by how Spencer resolved some of the tensions yeah. that he created. Uh, tell me about a couple of monsters in um, The Fairy Queen. Well, um, hard to pick my favorite monsters. 
you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say despair, even though I know that what you're going for are the sea monsters and the dragons and the, um, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask you to talk about despair, but so let's talk about him as a monster. Okay. The blatant beast, you know, you've got all these crazy creatures, but I think the most horrifying one, I'll get choked up if I talk about it, but, um, the Red Cross Knight's encounter with despair is one of the most moving things I've ever read. He, um, you know, starts the journey <laughs> in in secondhand armor, which is funny because you first see him and then you realize he's never even fought a battle. Yeah. And he's like all of us when we start a walk of faith. You know, I can do this. I'm I've got this. But yet he's young and untested. And so yeah. he doesn't even realize he's proud. He thinks he's being brave, but he's naive yeah. and he's proud and he's leaning upon his own power and he fails and he fails and he fails and he fails. And finally, he's captured. Arthur rescues him. He's captured by a giant after a gross moral failure. He's just completely broken. He's not strong enough to do anything because he's been imprisoned and his muscles are weak. And yet he sees someone riding riding past in fear. And he immediately thinks, after all those failures, his first thought is, I'll go figure this out and I'll go rescue. You know, I'll go save the day. Here I go to save the day. And he encounters despair. And despair has a dialogue that's terrifying. I mean, just why, why even, he, he not only recounts all of his mistakes, but he basically convinces him that he's doing God a favor and the world a favor if he just would check out. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, are you just gonna increase your sin if you keep living, you're going to keep doing harm. And he, as he intends to vanquish despair, he ends up at the end of the scene with a knife that he's about to kill himself. And Una, who is trying to rescue yeah. Una's kingdom, she rushes in and rescues him. And she takes him at that point to the house of holiness where he is tended by faith, hope and love. And um, that's where he really learns how, what it means to to help others and um yeah. to be a force of goodness so it's just it's such a mighty scene yeah and I, I hope i'm so suspicious of allegory and yet that allegory that you know insofar as it is i mean it's it's pretty pretty straight allegory yeah it's just so compelling that, yeah, that's one it, of my favorite moments in the in the whole book and it, it, granted it's i've only read the whole thing once um but the yeah. you know i've read i've read book one a few times and that's just just an incredible part. I'm yeah. so glad you talked about that. The emotional honesty, I think of that. And, you know, I think what struck me the first time I read it was I thought I was the only one. You know, I've read all these Christian books <laughs> about Christian life. And suddenly I'm reading something from the 1590s that basically recounts my own internal dialogue mm -hmm. and the accusations that hit us all when we're at our lowest point. And we just think we're just doing more harm here than good. Like, why mm -hmm. even? keep going so it's yeah I, it's hard to for me to call it allegory even though it is because it's just so emotionally honest yeah right i, I think that's a good way to put it i, I i'm bothered by allegory because it usually just feels like a puzzle to put together and once you sort of right. get the decoder ring right then everything right. just sort of falls into place and that's right the, as you said there, there's a, a psychological reality and emotional reality here that, that uh, yeah incredible. yeah i had some of my test readers get to that point and really be bothered should we take this out you know mm. 
but it resolves. So I ended yeah. up putting a footnote in there. Keep going. You know, don't stop yeah. here because it's so convincing. You find yourself yeah. believing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, though, there are moments, there are plenty of moments in this story that don't feel like they're exactly kid friendly. And yet you're doing this for young people. In well, part. in part, you know, C.S. Lewis, there's a famous C.S. Lewis quote, um, about every child should read the fairy queen in a beautifully illustrated volume between the, you know, on a rainy day between the ages of 12 and 16 or something like that. And I think 12 might be a little young. You know, I know kids are exposed to more these days, but what would you say? What age would you put this upon someone? I I am so bad at, at that kind of thing, knowing what's the right, you know, sort yeah. of, it, it, 12 does seem young for a lot of this. Yeah. Maybe, you know, and maybe some of this would just go over kids' heads if it's in the poetic form, but they're missing a lot of other stuff, too, um, (laughs) at that point. So I've made it clear what's happening. Um, I would say maybe 15 or 16, I guess. It just depends on the kid, what they've been exposed to. But, you know, I think a lot of adults also started reading The Fairy Queen. It's funny when I ask people, like, have you read The Fairy Queen? Yeah, yeah, I read it in college. I was like, you know, what'd you think? Oh, well, you know, (laughs) so I think hopefully there'll be some adults, too, that will just get the chance to enjoy this, because like like Lewis says, you know, once you are a resident of fairyland, you know, you you it's permanent. Mm -hmm. These stories get in your blood and you start to see the whole world through them. Yeah. It was was Lewis who said once you once the fairy queen has gained a reader, it, it never loses that reader. Yeah. Yeah. It's like becoming tired of London or of life. I think is what he said. It's yeah. right. It's yeah. right. I find myself constantly thinking about the world through this lens. So, yeah. So good. All right. So um, tell me about Calador. Okay. Calador. Calador um, is the knight of courtesy. So right. he is supposed to be he is supposed to be this example of ultimate courtly gentility, knows what to say, knows what to do. The interesting thing about book six is that Spencer changes the definition of courtesy throughout book six. He tries on one, then he tries on another, uh. then he tries on another, and tries on another. And there were some books written at the time that the average Elizabethan citizen would have been reading about how to be courteous. Uh-huh. and. Yeah. So at the beginning, you're set up thinking that this guy's going to be in, in, you know, he does, it's almost, he's almost too good. And yet he, he's oblivious. So he finds these, <laughs> this, this man and this woman in the wood, they're clearly not in the state to be visited by other people. <laughs> they're very, very intimately engaged. And instead of doing what any one of us would do and just oh gosh, you know, I'm out of here pretending that you'd never seen it, trying to escape. Um, he decides to go sit down and have a conversation with the man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so awkward. And so, you know, because he's proving how courteous he is, that he can have these, <laughs> throughout the Fairy Queen, you see these, these conversations, you know, conversation is a big part of it. Are you able to have a, a, a good, com- no book conversation? 
So, and this just leads to a series of disasters, of course, but, um, and then he disappears for the entire middle of the book and another character comes in and overtakes the main storyline. You just don't, you're like, what happened to this guy? He's the main knight. And then when he does come back in the scene, he completely neglects his duty, which he has been commissioned to uh, take out the blatant beast which mm-hmm. is a creature that sort of symbolized the gossip and the malicious uh, talk that was prevalent in Elizabeth's era. But also it's just kind of how it works, you know, the the dangers of the wicked tongue. And it has a lot of different tongues and it's just a ruthless mm-hmm. creature. But um, along the way, he stumbles into a community of shepherds and yeah. uh, falls in love with a pastoral gal and, and then he's he he's showing up. I, he's just so awkward. He's just so awkward to be the knight <laughs> of courtesy. It's hard for me to know where to stop, but he messes up and messes up and messes up, and uh, it's hilarious. So it's okay. It's I got it. Like Don Quixote. Well, yeah, right. That's that's, that's a, a great comparison. Okay, I got I just got to ask you about Braggadocio too. Oh, he's so funny. So. He also, I guess he also reminds me a little of Quixote, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the knight of book two is has gone into the forest with his palmer. He has a palmer who is kind of his guide, his his aged guide. And he goes in to try to rescue this woman. Uh, that's another story. But while he's in the forest, this charlatan who would remind you of, who are the two guys in Huckleberry Finn? Yeah, the, that, the, the prince and the... With the King and the Prince. Yeah, yeah. I can't. It seems like they had those are the only names they the, had. No, I'm sorry. The, the Dauphin. Well, they called him. The, yeah, try to pronounce the Dolphin. And yeah, the King and the Dolphin is who it was. Okay, okay. So um, he, he kind of reminds me of them. He's he's this massive charlatan, and he he takes the horse and he takes uh, I believe the shield, another in in the saddle and all the stuff. And so he believes at that point he's a knight. Uh-huh. And he is just puffed up and he's has these grand delusions of going to court and thinking you can see him thinking about how everybody's going to admire him. Um, but he's a total coward and he runs from everything. He steals. He he's just he's a terrible, terrible person who maintains this kind of high comic. You would think of uh, kind of a Shakespearean comic figure. But yeah. then in the end, I don't want to wreck it for people, but he ends up getting he ends up winning in some sense, in some sense. I mean, he does, things do happen to him at the very like, end. Like, does he get elected to Congress or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he finds a bunch of people who are like him. And no. he, um, yeah, I mean, he does, he does have bad things happen at the very end, but for a long time, he, it just seems to work. It seems to work for him for a long time. And it's very yeah. funny. Yeah. So. It's like a slippery, slippery pig. You can't really catch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way to rephrase. You know, my, I always ask who are the writers that make you want to write. It feels more appropriate to ask some other question. Oh, well, I mean, are, are there some Spencer commentators who helped you, who, who shaped your way of thinking about this? this oh, my gosh. Well, you know, of course, Hamilton's an incredible resource. I mean, just A.C. Hamilton's um, annotated Spencer is so good. And he's got a he has a Spencerian dictionary as well. But um, I love. Okay, these are 
my favorite people to read, and I think Spencerian critics are my favorite critics I've ever encountered. <laughs> and I, you know, I like, I, I love, I'm one of those nerds that likes to just be in the stacks reading literary criticism, but I've never read criticism that's like the Spencerian. And I think it's just because it's such a, it's an interesting such an interesting piece of literature. There's certain types of people who get hooked on it. Mm -hmm. And um, Lewis is, I'm not sure that I always agree with him and his images of life that was collected by um, a friend of his, it's a bunch of his lectures, but they, I mean, they're incredible. They're, they're so, so good. And he has a chapter, I think in his medieval studies book as well on the fairy queen. Um, so of course, read Lewis, read Lewis, read Lewis. Humphrey Tonkin um, blows my mind. He is an Esperanzist. So, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> you know, that language that is like the combo language. Yeah. Um, he's just brilliant. And some of his theories on what Spencer was doing as he progressed from book one to book six, he's just a delight to read. He's, he's so, and uh, he wrote me and uh, yeah, I will confess I screamed a little bit because, you know, this great yeah. thinker responded to me. He's, he's contacted me a couple of times and it's been just wonderful to see his kindness. Um, he's he glad to see that you're doing this. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's been very kind about it. If he's, yeah. if he's not, you know, yeah. um, the, uh, and then there have been some kind of collection. It seems like Spencer comes in and out of Vogue. But in the yeah. 70s, it seems like there were, uh, you know, these groups of people these who come together and have a conference and and uh -huh. write things. And uh, they they're so I bet it was so much fun to be in those rooms. Yeah, I took um, a seminar on Spencer at Vanderbilt and okay. uh, it was uh, there were three of us around a little round table plus the professor. Yeah. And he was a very old man, probably not as old as I am now, but I thought he was a very old man at the time. And it was just so much fun, you know, it was just, and there was so much to, to disagree about, about Spencer. Yeah. When you read those critics, it's yeah. wild how completely opposite people take that, those stories. Yeah. yeah. I think some of it's because the way he writes, um, you know, you've got the theology, you've got the politics, you've got the but then underneath that, you just had this kind of archetypal, you know, I don't know how to put exactly into words what like Beowulf does in when you read Beowulf, but it's like the story is doing a work, you're reading it, but also the story is getting in there and you're recognizing things, um, you know, what is unfirth, you know, it, I don't know, just, I feel like Spencer does some of that too. And so it's easy to adopt the stories into ourselves to where we're personalizing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason some of the passion grows around some of this. Yeah. All right. I want to make sure people have an easy time uh, finding your Kickstarter who, you know, people who want to help make this happen. So how do you do this? You go to Kickstarter and search something. What, what do you, how does it work? Um, probably the easiest way uh, would be to go to fairy queen, F A E R I E. Q U E E N E dot com. And or if you don't, if you forget that, go to Sky Turtle Press okay. um, and on like Facebook or Twitter. Um, and it will you you will eventually get to our page. Mm -hmm. And on our page, there's a link to the Kickstarter. So that's probably the easiest okay. way without giving you a extended URL here. All right. And I'll also include a link on the description of this episode so okay yeah we've got Rebecca, some fun stuff in the in the that? campaign i said we've got some fun stuff in the campaign i think it's going to be great some rewards and stuff it's going to be fun 
Excellent. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. This has been so much fun. It's always fun to talk to Rebecca. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.